Good afternoon. Appreciate everybody staying for our question and answer session. Ignore all of that stuff Eli said about the food coma and everything. You better stay up if you even start dozing. I'm going to preach an hour. So, no, I'm just kidding. But thanks for everybody's attention and being here this afternoon. Before we start, just want to reiterate something Neil said over there about us being a team and express how much we appreciate the church here at Lehman. And just say to one another, like to not take each other for granted. We might do that sometimes in our lives, but not to do that. We appreciate you. Thank you for being here. And let's always appreciate where God's placed us in this season of life together and to appreciate each other and never take each other for granted. And as we give appreciation, I also want to say something about the guys in the sound booth. We sometimes take them for granted. You just assume the songs are going to be there. And I assume the PowerPoint's going to be there, but they do a lot of working. And we might notice when it's not working, but we should appreciate them for the work that they do. John, Randy, and others, thank you for what you do and the work you put in. And thank all of you here. we got seven questions this afternoon. And so let's begin. Number one, on what day were the angels created? This is a good question. You open up your Bible to Genesis chapter one and you read the creation narrative. We've talked about it in the Genesis Bible class and in Hebrews chapter one. But as you start making your way down through the six days of creation, you have light, trees, plants, sun, moon, stars, fish, fowl, land animals and humans. And when you get to the end, Genesis one thirty one, Moses says everything that God made was very good. And yet there's no mention of angels. And so you step away from the six days of creation, at least as Moses gives it to us in Genesis chapter one and zeroes in in chapter two. And he makes no mention of angels, but there's more information in the rest of the biblical text that gives us some indication of where angels come from and what's their responsibility toward us. And when they came about in the first chapter of the book of Job, Job chapter one and verse six, we read of a day when the sons of God, that is, the angels came into the presence of God and then later on. God makes his first response to Job in Job 38 and verse seven. He says there was a time when the angels of God or the sons of God sang as God or shouted and rejoiced as God laid the foundations of the earth. Job 38 and verse seven. So Job 38 and verse seven says to us that the angels existed before the creation of the world, because when God laid the foundation of the world, they rejoiced. They were excited. They praised God for what he had done. Now, this isn't in conflict or contradiction of what you find in Genesis one and two, because the creation account in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two is about the creation of Earth. And it's about the creation of humanity. But it says nothing about the creation of angels or spirit beings or the heavenly realm, which God created, which we know exists. Yet we know they're created. And so in summary, what we can say about angels is this. They weren't created in what we know as the six 24 hour periods in Genesis chapter one, one through thirty one. And yet we still know they're not divine and they were and are created beings. Colossians 1:16, we mentioned in the sermon this morning, Paul says Jesus created everything in heaven and earth. Visible and invisible thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, everything that exists has been created by him and for him. And that would include the angelic host. They're not divine. They're created by Jesus. And we need to appreciate the fact that they're servants for God. And we'll say more about that in one of the questions that we'll have momentarily. So when were angels created, we don't know the exact day for certain because they weren't created in the same timeline as humans in the sixth six day creation. But they are not eternal like God. They're not divine. They were created by Jesus and they serve as God assigns them tasks to do so. Here's question number two. What is inherited sin? The fancy term for this is total hereditary depravity. And does the Bible teach this? 
This is the idea believed by many denominational friends and neighbors that we have and many in what's called the evangelical circles of Christendom as being born in sin, inherited sin. The way this doctrine is taught and espoused by those that believe it is this. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, every human being is born into the world guilty, guilty of sin. But more than that, they say more than the fact that we're stained. They say your soul is stained with the blackness of Adam's sin. They go further. And they say not only are we guilty of sin because of Adam's and it's just trickled down throughout humanity, but our hearts are so warped and inclined to do evil that we couldn't do good if we tried. We don't do any acts to please God, nor do we desire to. And if you see somebody who's unsaved do something good, they say you couldn't call that a good act. They were merely doing it for their own selfish purposes and reasons. And they misunderstand and abuse certain passages like Romans 3:23, Ephesians 2 and verse 3 and Psalm 51 and verse 5. But the Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible does teach that humans are depraved. That is wicked and guilty of sin. But it's not because of Adam. It's because of our own choice. Romans 3:23 says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Transgression is to go beyond God's law. First John three and verse four. But it's not merely to exist as a human being. It's a choice that we make. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter five. Notice what Paul writes in Romans five and verse 17. Romans five and verse 17. It's actually Romans five, 12, excuse me, Romans five, 12. Paul says, for by one man sin into the world and death by sin and death passed to all men because all men did what? All men sinned. You see, they would say, well, by one man sin into the world and death by sin. You know what Romans 5.12 says? Romans 5.12 says sin came into the world because of Adam. But then Romans 5.12 says sin came into your life and my life because of us, because of me. The Bible doesn't lay our sins at Adam's feet. It lays it at our own feet. We're guilty of sin. And the rest of the Old Testament bears this out. In places like Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, the Old Testament law reiterates this idea that Men are not punished for the sins of their fathers, but they're punished for their own sin. And sometimes in Old Testament history, kings would have to make decisions and they would quote that. In Kings 14, three through five. And in Second Chronicles 25 and verse four, before punishment was enacted, they said, now, wait a minute. We know what the law says. Nobody's punished for the sins of his parents, but for his own sins. By the time you get to Ezekiel and Ezekiel 18, Israel's picked up this idea. And in the first four verses of Ezekiel 18, they give Ezekiel this parable. They say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. We would say it this way. The parents ate all the candy and the kids got all the cavities. And Ezekiel says, you're never going to use that parable again. Nobody borrows anybody's righteousness or wickedness. Ezekiel 18:20. Ezekiel says the righteousness of the righteous will be upon him and the unrighteousness will belong to the individual. No man is punished for the sins of their forefathers. It's their own doing. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. And we should be careful that Calvinistic ideas like total hereditary depravity or being born in sin creep into our terminology in our own psyche when we say things like, well, I was just born this way. I've always been thinking like this. This is just how my attitude is. We are born into a context. We aren't born into a perfect world like Eden. And we do have certain things that pull at us and pull on us. But there is no behavior and no characteristic so woven into the fabric of our humanity that we're just doomed to behave that way. No, we can change and we can repent. Now, a brief word about the passages that are sometimes used to teach this and what we should say in response. Psalm 51 and verse five, David says, in sin, my mother conceived me. If you know Psalm 51, you know it's in that poetic psalm where David is lamenting about his sin with Bathsheba and confessing for what he had done. And 
25, David doesn't say he was born in sin. He uses a hyperbolic statement to say, I'm so terrible in sin. My mother conceived me. He doesn't say he was born in sin. Neither does he speak for the rest of the human race. Everything in Psalm 51 is David owning up for his own sin against you and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight that you find when you speak and clear when you judge. Or they'll say Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 3 says we were by nature the children of wrath just like the rest. And they'll say, you see that by nature, you're a sinner. You can't change it. But that's not what Paul said. Paul uses the word fusis, which means that which we adopt through habitual practice. We use this word this way all the time. You see somebody dunk a basketball and you say LeBron James. Say this person's a natural. You don't mean that he came out of the womb with spalding on his forehead. You just mean Right. And you would say that about a basketball or a baseball with Wilson. What you mean is this person is so skilled at what they're doing. It's as if they've been doing it their entire And when Paul said by nature, children, Paul does not mean to let us off the hook and say, well, you were born in sin. There's nothing you can do. On the contrary, Paul says something stronger. You and I have been practicing, practicing sin so well and so long. It's as if it's our natural course of action. Paul says it's your choice. We're not born in sin. We choose to sin. Sin is the violation of God's law. Nobody can make us do that. We choose to do it. Romans 9 and verse 11, Paul was talking about Rebecca and Isaac's two children, Jacob and Esau. And he says, before any one of them knew to do good or to do bad, God had plans for them. What does that mean to do good or to do bad? It meant as infants, they weren't guilty of any sin or transgression. And neither are we. Sin is our responsibility We're not born into it. We behave ourselves into it. And only when we repent of it can God forgive us. Here's number three. I can't even read that, but I know what the question is, so don't worry. All right. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus flipping the tables and getting angry on certain occasions. But the Bible also commands us to cease from anger and forsake wrath. When can I flip over a table and when is anger acceptable? I just give you the questions as opposed to me. The Bible does say that human beings get angry. More than that, Jesus was angry. Matthew 21, 12 through 13, the Bible says he went in and saw the temple and he was angry and he flipped over the tables and he quoted the passage from Isaiah. My father's house should be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. But then in Mark three and five, he was also angry. He was going to heal the man with a withered hand and he saw the hypocrisy in their hearts. And the Bible says he looked around on them with anger. Jesus was angry. As the perfect human, Jesus expressed anger. And you know why he did. It's because being angry is a part of what it means to be a human. It's a response. And it's a part of our human makeup, just like laughter, joy, sorrow and sadness. But of course, the difference is Jesus was perfect and he possessed every human attribute in its complete perfection. That means when it was a time to be sad, Jesus was always sad. And when he should have been happy, he was always happy. And when he should have been angry, he's angry. He never mixed up or got it wrong. When we read about Jesus flipping the tables in Matthew 21, we should appreciate that Jesus didn't go in there one day and have a divine temper tantrum. No, Jesus' flipping of the tables came after three years of ministry, pleading with these people, weeping over them, Luke 19, 41, begging them to repent and to do the right thing. And when they didn't, in his righteous indignation, he flipped the tables and told them to depart out of his father's house because they had corrupted what God intended to be a place for worship. The Bible says God gets angry. In fact, Psalm 7 and verse 11 says God is angry at the wicked every single day. And so it's not a bad thing to be angry. But here's our problem. We're not like Jesus all the time. 
Jesus was angry and yet he never sinned. Hebrews four and verse 15. But we need to be careful when we get angry. We are to be angry about certain things. If we're going to be God's people, we need to practice righteous indignation. When we see sin paraded and applauded, injustice, wickedness, it would be wrong to be apathetic and careless about that. What did Moses do when he came down off of Mount Sinai, Exodus 32 and verse 19? When he saw idolatry, fornication and wickedness, the, his anger was aroused and he broke the tables. He did what he should have done as a righteous repre representative of God. And we need to do the same thing. And yet the Bible cautions us against always being angry. This passage, this idea of where to forsake anger or where to cease from anger and forsake wrath, it comes from Psalm 37 and verse 8. And whenever you and I read a passage in the Bible that seems to prohibit all anger, we should examine the context and say, now, what exactly is being said in Psalm 37? It's a psalm of David where David is talking about enemies and the wicked prospering. And David is cautioning himself and others who will read the psalm to shy away from, to stray away from letting their anger get them to the point where they take vengeance into their own hands and in turn violate the will of God. And so he says, cease from anger, turn away from wrath. But the Bible doesn't say we can never be angry. The Bible says there'll be times in your life when you're to be angry, but don't be in a hurry to do it. Be not hasty spirit to be angry. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 9. The person that's slow to anger is of great understanding, but the one who's hasty in his anger exalts folly. Proverbs 14 and verse 29. Be angry and don't sin and don't give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And the wrath of man never really practices the righteousness of God, James 1 and verse 20. And so we should be cautious. The next time you're angry, ask yourself this. Am I angry because this offends God and because God wants me to be angry? Or is this more of a personal vendetta? Is this about me? Have I gone through all of the channels that God would have me to to exercise things in the way that God would want me to do things? When we're angry, we should realize that we're in war in this world. And God's given us spiritual warfare, weaponry and ammunition. To do something about that anger. We are not in the flesh and we don't respond in the flesh. We should be God's people because God holds us accountable even when we're angry. Be careful about being angry and then committing sin because that in turn will anger God. And that's the last thing we want as his people. The Bible doesn't all out and out prohibit anger, but it cautions us to be careful about it because anger can be our undoing. Here's the next one. What makes a curse word a curse word? And how do we determine what a bad word is and what does the Bible say about this? There are several layers to this question, and we'll start with the secular. How does the dictionary, just English dictionaries, define curse words? The English dictionary defines a curse word as a word that's used to insult someone, a word that's used to be a rude insult to someone, especially when you're angry or when you're upset. And so that in and of itself, that definition suggests it's in violation of the thing we just discussed a moment ago, which is ultimately about self-control. People curse when they get angry and the dictionary says people do it because they want to insult somebody else in their frustration, in their anger. But the same thing would be true in moments of extreme happiness or even carelessness. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, that in the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word that we've uttered. Our words are going to be justifying us or condemning us. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. And so this idea of a curse word is something to insult somebody, express our anger, our frustration or maybe even our intense happiness. But it's due to a lack of self-control. But there's more than that. There are associations 
that deal with the ratings of movies and that deal with the ratings of music, secular, not Christian, not spiritual or religious in any way. And they've seen fit to mark music with certain ratings to say, because it has these words and this type of content, it's not it's not good for those individuals that are younger. We don't want them to be exposed to these words. I wonder why they do that. If the secular world understands that there are certain words that shouldn't be used and things that shouldn't be said more so those that are Christians. But occasionally someone comes along and says, wait a minute, curse words are merely a social construct. The Bible doesn't give a list of curse words. It's just something that people have come up with in common vernacular. It's just words that offend people. It's just a social construct we've come up with. And people have said these are good words. These are bad. But God really doesn't care. But God won't let us get away with that. The Bible that we hold in our hands was originally written in Hebrew and in Greek. And so we shouldn't expect to open it and find curse words listed for us in English in the vernacular in which we speak. But rest assured, we can't sin in a with it with God. We can't say to ourselves, well, we can outsmart God. We'll just sin in English. And that way, God will never know about it. No, God's done something different altogether. Rather than give each individual language a list of words that they can't say or shouldn't say, God has described certain words in a certain category and forbidden them altogether. And so turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter says in verse 29 in this section where Paul's talking about putting on the new man Ephesians 4 and verse 29 after Paul says let him that stole steal no more but let him labor so that he might work with his hands willingly and give to the one in need notice the next verse Paul says in verse 29 this is comprehensive let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good that it might edify the hearers somebody says what is what is corrupt communication that's the old King James the word sarpos, that's the Greek word used here. And you know what it means? It means exactly what you think it means in English. You look it up in BDAG. That's the premier Greek lexicon. And BDAG says this word in Greek means bad. It means unwholesome. It means that which is corrupt and doesn't build up. Now, what words fit into that category? A lot of them, but surely words that the general populace on a whole has defined as curse words, as words that offend. But the New Testament says more. Go to Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter four and notice verse five and verse six. Colossians four and verse five, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders and redeem the time. And then in verse six, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt so that you might know how you ought to answer each individual. Paul says our speech is supposed to be life giving. It's supposed to be that which preserves and curse words don't do that. They tear down. They destroy. They're unwholesome. And our collective society has agreed that these words are destructive. And they do damage. Now, one more thing on this point. Sometimes somebody says, well, what about words that aren't curse words, but they're just kind of bad words? You know, these aren't really we wouldn't put these in the category of curse words. Can we get away with these? Sometimes people take the idea of euphemisms too far. And they want to trace the history of every single word and you end up not being able to say anything. I know that's true, but we should also appreciate what we said a moment ago. We can't say, well, I won't curse, but I'll say curse word junior and God won't know the difference because God knows. The standard for the Christian is holiness. First Peter 1, 15 and 16 approve of things that are excellent. Philippians one and verse 10. And so if you say, well, I wouldn't curse, I wouldn't say this word in the church building. And I'm smart enough not to say it in the presence of my brethren. But when I'm at work or when I'm among my friends, I'll just kind of let this one go. We won't outsmart God. No belief that we practice in any realm, especially in this cursing realm, but in any realm, any behavior that we practice 
that rationalizes ungodliness and that minimizes holiness and that says to people you can be less like Jesus and be pleasing to God is unhealthy, unsound, and it's unbiblical. Woe to the bilingual Christian that talks one way with the brethren and another way with the world. I'm telling you, if you say, well, I struggle, sometimes I curse. We should wash our mouths out with righteousness because God is going to hold us accountable. James 3, 1 through 16. And it won't do to stand at the judgment bar of God and say, well, you know, words are just words. It won't work because he's told us how he wants us to speak. And we should ask ourselves, would Jesus talk like this? Would I talk this way in the presence of Almighty God? My grandma want to hear me talking like this. God hears everything we say. Proverbs 15 and verse three. And so curse words and words in that same word family. God doesn't give you and I a list that breaks everything down. But I think, you know, the words. I think you and I know the phrases. I think we know the colloquial things that we sometimes might insert instead of curse words. And the Bible condemns them and says, one day you're going to give an account for them. every word we've ever spoken that either makes us smile or makes us cringe. And we should repent if we need to and make the necessary ramifications. Now, here's the next one. I've lost count, but there's Hebrews 13 to mean are angels involved in the world today. Would you turn your Bible to Hebrews 13 and Hebrews 13 and verse one? The Hebrew writer says, let brotherly love continue. That's about the Christians. But then in verse two, he broadens his scope and he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because by doing so, some have entertained angels unknowingly. So in verse one, he says, love the brotherhood. And then in verse two, he says, essentially, love everybody. This statement about entertaining angels unaware probably goes back to several Old Testament stories. There are several that are in the possible range of what he's referring to. Maybe it's with Abraham or with Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. That's the first time angels appear in the Bible. Or it could be with Gideon in Judges chapter 6, 11 through 20, or with Manoah in Judges 13, 3 through 20. But what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 13 and verse 2 is not go out and show hospitality because you might be interacting with an angel without knowing it. On the contrary, he's saying you should go out and show hospitality, love strangers. People in the Bible, when angels could take on human form, were sometimes entertaining angels without knowing it. And this is the Hebrew writer's way of saying when you do what God wants you to do, Amazing things can happen far beyond what you would have otherwise thought. He's saying, hey, entertain strangers, practice hospitality because God's pleased with it and you never know the good things that might result. And then there's the second question. Are angels involved in our world today? To the first chapter of Hebrews and Neil quoted this verse this morning in Hebrews chapter one and verse 14. The Hebrew writer says that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to be servants of those that are to inherit salvation. Hebrews 1:14. that verse says angels are involved in our world. More importantly, angels are involved in the lives of those of us who are to inherit salvation. So if you're a Christian, angels are involved in our world, in our lives specifically. Somebody says, how do they do that? We don't. They strengthen Jesus after his temptation, Matthew 4:13, and right before his passion, Luke 22 and verse 43. When Peter was in prison and he broke out with the angel's help in Acts chapter 12, you remember, he gets to Mary's house knocking on the door. Rhoda says, Peter, say it's his angel. Acts 12 and verse 15. Jesus talked about new Christians and he said their angels in heaven always behold their face. Matthew 18 and verse 10. And when people obey the gospel or when people are restored, Luke 15 and verse 10, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Some people have said maybe the 
changes are involved in our lives today through providence. And that's very well possible that providentially they do things for us that we don't know. But appreciate this, that just because the working of angels in the world is mysterious does not mean it's make believe. They're involved in our lives. And we shouldn't let our desire for complete knowledge and then our lack thereof cause us to be discouraged about this and say, well, maybe that just doesn't happen. The Bible says that it does. And we should simply rejoice in that it does happen. And so in summary, practice hospitality, not because you're going to meet an angel. You're going to meet another human that needs your help. And as you serve them, the Bible says in ways we don't really appreciate or know angels are serving us. And it just might be that in practicing hospitality to a stranger, serving them, angels serving us, they might become a Christian. And when they do, the Bible says even then angels will rejoice. Here's the next one. I believe this is number six. Yes. Number six. Explain the difference between body, soul and spirit. And first. Thessalonians 5.23, Paul offers up a prayer or a wish. I pray to God that your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think we have a problem with the body. You've got that figured out. You know what your body is. But then the soul and the spirit can become challenging for us to try to unravel. What is the soul? What is the spirit? The spirit in the New Testament is used to talk about sometimes wind or breath or the inner man. Jesus said when he was dying on the cross to God into your hands, I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. Stephen said the same thing in Acts 7 and verse 59. Into your hands, Lord Jesus, I commit my spirit. When Paul went to Athens in Acts 17, he was so frustrated. He saw the idols. Acts 17, 16 says he was troubled in his spirit. So the spirit refers to the inner man. And then there's this word soul. And the word soul has different uses depending on the context. And we have words like this can. Right. A can can be an aluminum can. Give me a can of soda. Can can deal with ability. Will you come to my house tonight? Yes, I can. Can can be asking a question. Can you hurry up with the Q&A so we can go home and take a nap? I mean, it can mean different things depending. And so it is with soul. Sometimes in the Bible, a soul means a person. In the days of the flood, eight souls were saved. First Peter three and verse 20. But then there are other times when the soul deals just like the spirit with this inner person, this immortal part of us. Don't fear those that can destroy the body, but after that have nothing that they can do. Fear the one that can destroy both body and what's the next part of that? Soul in heaven. Soul and spirit are used interchangeably. It's hard to figure out which is which. Sometimes it's used just to describe the entire person. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it's used this way. Some people have said it this way. The body is the body. The soul is that inner part of us that animates who we are. And then the spirit is the part of us that's going to live on forever. I'm fine with that, except soul and spirit are used in both ways. Paul says, withdraw from the ungodly person that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the eternal part of him. First Corinthians five and verse five. And yet Jesus says body and soul will live eternally. Whatever you make of it, the Bible's saying this to you and me. And this is important, especially in 2022. The Bible is saying to human beings, you and I are more than mortal. We're more than flesh and blood. We're body, soul and spirit. And in this prayer, in this wish that Paul offers up in First Thessalonians 5, 23, God is saying to you and me, all that you are. I want to be sanctified body, spirit. Jesus died to save all of it. We say, well, Jesus died for my soul. Oh, that's right. But the Bible also says he died for your body and for your spirit. And he'll resurrect and transform all three. In the last day. Now, here's the last question. Number seven. What is the history of the Church of Christ and how do I respond to accusations that the Church of Christ was started by Campbell or Stone? It's a good question. 
And I hope that every member of the Church of Christ of any appreciable age can explain to other individuals, our friends and neighbors, who we are and what we are, because accusations like this aren't just unique to whoever posed this question. We all may face them at some time or another. Simply put, the Church of Christ is the church that Jesus promised to build. Matthew 16 and verse 18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And when Peter and others preached the gospel on the first Pentecost following the resurrection, when people obeyed the gospel, they were added to the church, to the saved number. Acts 2 and verse 47. And in every place in the Roman Empire in the first century where the gospel was preached and people became Christians, guess what? Those communities of folks became. They became churches of Christ, groups of people that belong to Almighty God. And yet the New Testament not only tells us about the church, but Paul said there's going to come a time when there's going to be this great apostasy. When people are going to turn away from the New Testament, first Timothy four, one and following. And when that happened, denominations sprung up all throughout the world. Different individuals grabbed the Bible and they created their various groups. It had been a long time coming. But in the centuries that followed the apostasy, denominations sprung up. And that's why we have that today. But whenever an individual obeys the gospel, just accepts the seed of New Testament Christianity, they become a Christian and a part of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Sometimes. Accusation is leveled against members of churches of Christ. Well, you're the result of Alexander Campbell or Barton Stone. You guys don't go back to the first century to the New Testament. In order to be the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, we do not need an untraceable link all the way back to Acts chapter two. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus teaches that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. Luke eight and verse 11, not apostolic succession. Jesus doesn't say we need an unbroken chain link all the way back to Acts chapter two. All we need is the New Testament. And wherever people obey that, you know what they become? Just Christians. Nothing more, nothing less. Listen, we should respect and appreciate anybody anywhere who has ever stood up and said, let's go back to the Bible and do Bible things in Bible ways. That's exactly what Campbell and Stone were saying. They were saying, hey, let's break away. Christendom has become the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted. Let's just go back and do what the Bible says. And when they did that, they didn't intend to start a denomination or a different church or organization. They were saying, let's just be Christians and do what the Bible says. And wherever people do that, we should applaud them, support them and join arms with them because they're doing nothing more than what the New Testament authorizes. And when we do that, though, we don't exalt them. We exalt Christ to become a Christian. You don't need to know Stone, Campbell or Smith. You need the writings of Peter, James, Paul, Mark and others. That's all you need. One illustration before we close, I think, makes this point. Suppose baseball went out of population in the United States of America. In 200 years from now, somebody picks up a book and dusts it off and says, this seems like a great game. We ought to play it. They get some sticks, some balls, put down three bases and a home plate. Get a few guys together, three strikes, you're out, four balls, you walk over the fence, that's a home run. Question, have they started a new game? Or have they instead rediscovered an old truth recently forgotten? You know the answer. You would say baseball has been around since the 1800s and it was played in this country for centuries. But for reasons maybe unknown to us, it's gone out of popularity. And now we've got the rule book. And so long as we do this, it wouldn't matter where you played it. You know what you would call that game? You would call it baseball. And it really doesn't matter who the guys are, who the people are. When you pick up the New Testament in a world where New Testament Christianity may be foreign or corrupted and you say, hey, we're just going to teach Jesus is the son of God. And if you believe that and you're willing to turn from your sins, we'll baptize you into Christ. And you know what you'll be. We won't throw any man made label on you. You'll just be a Christian. And when a bunch of us do it, we'll just assemble and do exactly what the New Testament says. And we'll call ourselves what they call themselves Christians. And our assembly 
It'll be the church that belongs to Jesus Christ because that's who we are. That's not a denomination. No matter who the man is that stands up and says we ought to start doing that. That's the New Testament Christianity that Jesus died for us to practice. Maybe tonight somebody needs to do just that. Obey the gospel. We'd be happy to assist you in doing that. Maybe we can pray with you or pray for you. Our plea is the same as those in the first century. Turn to Jesus, obey his gospel and be baptized. And if you've done that and you need the help of brethren, as Russell mentioned this morning, the prayers of the righteous do avail much. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.